When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment Option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members, while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, story time, our weekendly exploration through the thickets, the undergrowth, the streams, the hills and the valleys. The, uh, the the Glens and the Dales, the Glen Maxwells and the Adam Dales of cricketing history. I'm Jeff Lemon. Uh, the other one's Adam Collins. You look cold. I suppose you are because you're in London, um, but you look especially cold today. I've got a beanie on. I, I've just uh, been outside for the first time. Our mandatory Ooh. self-isolation period came to a close this morning, Saturday morning that is, and we've done our 10 full days. And, of course, with the mm-hmm. test match finishing today it means that i was watching that closely until we finished our india england daily episode and i've just taken winnie to the park which was lovely but yes i'm freezing and i've still got the, the beanie on accordingly and i'm going to keep it on mm. through the podcast yeah i mean that is fair enough i don't mind personally headwear optional at the moment uh you know i'm, I'm wearing a scarf and i'm in melbourne so i do what i want uh, it's 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 late at night where I am, but that that's not unusual. I thought we'd start the show today with this little pondering of something that was sent into us by Matt May, a correspondent, talking about no balls, and, and we like to talk about no balls a lot on the final mm. word. But this is not the overstepping um, version of the no ball. But we like to find those weird little loopholes in cricket where something strange happening would lead to something else strange happening. And so the scenario as it was put to us was this. Say that it's the last delivery of a limited overs game, you know. Could be a T20, could be a 50-over game. You can imagine it as you like in your mind's palace. And their batting team needs seven runs to win, or maybe it could even be more than that. But, you know, say they need seven to win. And there's a no-ball bowled for height. There's a beamer that gets bowled, for instance. You know, maybe it's by a spinner, whatever it is. It's above waist height. And that ball, or it's just on. It's one of those sort of marginal ones. It's just on waist height. Mm -hmm. If the player clobbers that over square leg for six, then they tie the game and they lose on boundary count back or whatever it is, and they, they don't get what they want. But if they get out to it, then there would be a replay, a DRS replay, which would have an umpire's DRS, which would have a look at whether it was too high or not. And if it were gauged to be too high, it would be given as a no ball. And then they'd get a penalty run for the no ball and they'd get another ball to face to try to hit a six to win the game. Mm -hmm. So it's a situation where you'd be better off getting out than not getting out if, if that were indeed the case. Because if a ball is bowled that's high and it's hit 
away for six. There's no mechanism for the umpire to say, I want to have a look at that upstairs and see if that was a, a no ball for height. It's, it's only there if they get someone out. Yeah, I was going to put that to you in response. Can an umpire at the moment refer a non-wicket upstairs for the height no ball. I mean, I've, I've not seen it, but I mean, I assume based on Matt's correspondence that he's explored that and you can't. And that's, yeah, mm. it's a loophole, isn't it? It's it's an easily fixable loophole, but uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think. W- w- have you ever, like, yeah, it, it seems odd that there's never been an instance of this because presumably there have been waist high, well, you know, ones that can go either way because I always check for it when there's mm. a wicket, right? Ones that could go either way in real time where the batting team would yep. be saying to the umpire, that's over waist high. And, yeah, I suppose there is no provision to send it up to the third umpire. No, and, and where the arguments sort of happen on the field, as you remember Rohit Sharma getting out in the, the 2015 World Cup Absolutely. against Bangladesh yeah, yeah. Um, and then the decision being reversed in part because it seemed like the Indian players on the field were were making their displeasure known at the fact that it was being considered as, as being a wicket. And at that point, the umpires went upstairs for it. So... Yeah, it's a, it's a curious one. That at the moment, I think the only provision is to go to the square leg umpire and get a ruling on the field. But if you were to get yourself out of that delivery court, then you might end up having a better chance. You might stay in the game. We need to add this to the list of demands we're going to send to the MCC Cricket Committee and in turn <laughs> to the ICC. What, what are they? They've got different names. There's the MCC Cricket Committee and there's the ICC. I can't quite put my finger on what they call themselves. Laws Committee? No, no. It's, it's no, The Cricket Committee... Uh, anyway, there, there is a sort of a, there's two layers, isn't there? There's the laws of the game, and then there's what the ICC do for the mm. um, the, the the playing conditions that professional cricketers uh, play under. But we have a list, and we're checking it twice, and hopefully we can talk to someone with some influence and, and get some of these anomalies tidied up the next time they meet. On other miscellaneous, John O'Halen. He's on Hicks Watch. He is watching Hicks more closely than anyone since the Howard government in about 2003. <laughs> he's he's keeping a close eye on on Jody, the Jody variety. Jono writes in to say, in this week's edition of Hicks Watch, happy to report another positive outcome. While chasing St George Sutherland's total of 155, Sydney were one for 12, entered Jody Hicks, steering her side to 116 with a knock of 40 runs from 55 balls. Part of an 86-run match-winning third wicket partner. Sydney won by seven wickets. Amazing what happens when you get to bat. Makes me think, we were talking off air about some cricket fiction I've been reading recently. Maybe we should Mm. work David Hicks into a a story we write about Jody Hicks at some point. Fictionalised story, of course. That that sounds like it could go very, very Horribly, horribly wrong. Um, (laughs) An explosive new um, (laughs) piece of writing. Uh, well, I think because John O'Halen has been such a fantastic uh, correspondent for us in recent weeks, keeping an eye on what, mm. what Jody Hicks is up to, uh, we should make John O our C-Bus Super Performer of the Weekend, Jeff, which is a new segment. Yeah. Well, not a new segment, a segment we're bringing back uh, in 2021, albeit belatedly. I'm prepared to take that. I think John O deserves that. The tagline, the message that C-Bus would like you to have is, don't get stumped. See what they did there, cricket. When it comes to your retirement, visit cbussuper.com.au and then you can add on slash the final word and go to our landing page where our friendly cartoon faces will greet you and say, don't be afraid of superannuation. It's money that you get when you're old. It's good. Have some. So, yeah, go and, go and talk to them. They know more about it than we do. Yeah, without getting into too much depth on this, a very, very good time uh, to get your super sorted out. Uh, a lot of back and forth happening at the moment in that industry as far as what the federal government's up to. So if you haven't got your super sorted, do so. cbussuper.com.au forward slash the final word. All right. Our explorations into cricket history are about to begin and they do so 
via the medium of a game. A fun game, a game for the whole family, if the whole family likes cricket. That game is called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game we play with the people on our patron page. They support the show by sending us uh, an amount of currency, not a normal amount, not a flat amount, not a round amount, not any shape, an irregular shape, a shape that relates to cricket. And we have to work out what the cricket number means. The first of these comes in from Liam Dalton in our new numbers this week. The number is $7.37. So it could be 7.37, 73.7, $737. Could be an aeroplane. Don't know. Liam Dalton, 737. What have you got? Well, there's been a number of interesting 7 for 37s in, in Test cricket. One of those was Jason mm-hmm. Gillespie at Leeds in 1997. That was the the series where there were a bunch of seven first taken. There was Gillespie at Leeds. There was Kaspervitz at the Oval. There was McGrath at Lords, I think it was from memory, and also seven for thirty-seven are, are figures that well the best bowling for two absolute champions. In addition to those three Australian quicks, Courtney Walsh and Mackay and Tini, so two of the most prolific fast bowlers in the history of the game, they bagged themselves seven for thirty-sevens. But Jeff, a player which you've had a strong interest in in the past, mm-hmm. as, as far as uh, what he was able to achieve in the early days of what became known as Test cricket, is J J Ferris, John James, yes. John James Ferris, uh, he took seven for 37 in his one test match for England. So the left arm swing master, he was kind of the first bowler uh, of the time to really get the ball to hoop. Uh, and, he, and being a left armer, it was a point of difference. He, he did so in eight test matches for Australia, mostly alongside Charlie Turner, who was lethal. I mean, they bowled out England together on debut for... 45, or Ferris's debut, I should say, for 45 at the SCG uh, back in Mm -hmm. 1887. But pressing fast forward to 1891, he'd made the move to live in the UK and they took him to South Africa, as you do. He'd moved there like, hey, you now live here, you can play for us. And Mm. they had a long tour of South Africa. Um, (laughs) A long tradition was established. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Uh, And they spent the entire of the, 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 I guess, the northern winter or the southern summer uh, in South Africa in 1891-92. He picked up 263 first-class wickets on that trip. Uh, It it culminated in, in one test match, which was played at Cape Town, a standalone test. Uh, and in that, uh, Ferris took 13 for 91 and 7 for 37, Liam Dalton's figures, uh, in the second inning. So England go on to win by an innings and 189 runs. Coincidentally, it's the one test match, well, it's the first test match that Billy Murdoch played for England. So, of course, Billy Murdoch um, was... Uh, was, was an Australian player along with JJ Ferris and they both ended up finishing uh, their international careers over for England. All up, Ferris took 61 test wickets at 12.7. So I was going to say second to George Lohman's 10.75, but Jeff, after today, second to George Lohman's 10.75 average and Akshar mm. Patel's 10.49. No, sorry, 10.59, I should say. Now, of course, in the case of Akshar, he'll need to play uh, you know, more test cricket and maintain that that average in order to knock one of those two out of the, the top two positions. It sort of feels as though they'll be there forever as one and two. But that's where Ferris ended up. He, he went back to Australia in the mid-1890s. He uh, returned to play for South Australia and very briefly for New South Wales. And then, quite sadly, he passed away in, in 1900. He signed up to the British Army for the Second Boer War. And mm. in Durban, he picked up 
typhoid or so it was reported and died at the age of 33 now there's a bit of mystery actually around his death there's been further research to suggest that he actually had a seizure on a tram after he was discharged from the military and there's even some confusion around uh, the circumstances upon uh, his discharge at the end of the second Boer war but what we know for sure is that he took 61 test wickets 13 of them for England and 7 for 37 were his figures in his last innings in test cricket so are you saying that if we recall what we've spoken about recently with Clem Hill he's the second international cricketer we're aware of to be killed by a tram tram well, yeah that's right killer. that that's it because uh well in this case it sounds like he was on the tram uh when he mm. had the seizure so yeah the, the report always you was can't rule those two things out they might be related how do we know they're not related sure what sure. was the tram doing yeah we, we need the full information before we can make any conclusion well, well there was a book written and that's where the additional research comes from and i haven't read the book i've only read uh, sort of a summary of it so i'm reluctant to sort of assert what the what the book does um because i don't want to mm. besmirch the character uh, of jj ferris despite the fact that he died 121 years ago but yeah the original reports that were carried in wisdom and so on about him simply contracting typhoid uh, it's a bit more um, it was a bit more going on than that, perhaps. But, yes, that's our first number for today. 737. Thank you, Liam Dalton. That's most appreciated. J.J. Ferris. Well, um, actually, Patel, de- depending how you qualify it, some statos want 1,000 deliveries bold, some want 2,000 deliveries bold before they put players on their list. So yeah. at the moment, he's got 766 balls bold, Akshar Patel, in test cricket. So he'll have to I bump think, that up a yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I, I think 2,000 is the right measure for that personally. I think for tests, I think they do yeah. 1,000 for ODIs maybe, yeah. 2,000 for tests. It feels right, doesn't it? Especially when you consider that batsmen need to play 20 innings. I think it's more in line, mm. I think, than... A thousand feels a little bit light, given that Akshar's only played three test matches and he's three quarters of the way there. Yeah, although 20 innings would be, you know, to get to, say, 2,000 deliveries would be 20 100-ball innings. And 100-ball innings is nothing to be sneezed at, you know. That's That's true. That's a cow and ton. Um, (laughs) So maybe it's a fair bit. But, yeah, whichever way it goes, um, it looks like he'll get to that deliveries Mm. mark sooner rather than later. Our second number is a double header. That means it comes from two different people, quite possibly for two different reasons. $2.14, maybe £2.14 in one of these cases. It comes from Paul Reeve and Anna Forsyth. Paul sent a clue with his number. You don't have to do that. Don't feel obliged, but you can if you want. Paul said, my nerd pledge is something I was reminded of by a minor news story in August. I'm English, but the 2.14 has nothing to do with England. Yeah, so it's unlikely to be uh, what I came up with, which... Um, sort of relates to England in the sense that they were playing in this game. Uh, uh, it was, but it's more an Irish factoid. In, in August last year, of course, it's when when Ireland beat England in the third One Day International at the Rose Bowl, and Paul Sterling and Andy Balburnie put on 214, which proved to be the uh, defining uh, partnership of that match, where they chased down 329, if memory serves me correctly. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's relevant, and it's an, and it counts as far as being a, a news story. I'd say it was more than a minor news story, though, and it did happen in August. Yeah. But I reckon you're going to be taking this somewhere else, Jeff? Well, uh, something that wouldn't have had the same level of headlines at the time. Uh, I don't know if this was a new story. If it was, it was pretty niche. But August would have been, last August would have been the 18th anniversary of Matali Raj making 214 in a test match for India. That was the highest score in women's tests at the time. It was her third match 
She batted for 10 hours down in Taunton where, you know, it, some, some long, slow games happened in Taunton. Had to have a lot of patience there. India made 467, got the draw. As far as it being an 18-year anniversary, you know, that's not the round number that you usually do anniversaries in. But I thought it fitted because... It, Pretty much every player in Indian cricket comes through before the age of 18. You know, they're <laughs> big on getting the young talent through. Matali Raj was one of them. She was 16 when she started playing for India. Back in 1999, she's she's one of your ever-dwindling supply of 20th century cricketers. Well, we had one this week. you can make your Y2K joke about. That's right. Well, we had one this week. Chris Gale played uh, in the T20 International Series against Sri Lanka. I don't think Shahab Malik realistically will, will play for Pakistan again, although I stand to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Shahid Afridi is going to make another comeback. So it could be just know. Gale and Mithali Raj. At first-class level, there's still, of course, uh, Suwanji. But in addition to him, in England, Gareth Batty still played last year. He debuted back in 1997. So there are a few people. There, there aren't many, though, but at the international level, I love the fact that Mithali Raj has um, still got plenty of cricket left and very determined to play on until the World Cup next year. Well, if she's allowed to play because the Indian women's team have just been absolutely put on ice um, for, you know, since COVID started. Yeah, oh, and some interesting selections in that team this week. Shikha has been not dropped but rotated. I think they used the word rested, rested given they haven't played <laughs> for a year. I think I understand what Harman Preet was saying. It was that they want to see more players before they agree on their their, their formulation ahead of that World Cup. But, yeah, Shikha who... I would have thought it's one of the first mm. players picked for that Indian team won't be uh, well, playing against Africa next week. Speaking of them not playing, it's worth noting that Matali's 214 came in her third test match. She hasn't got another test 100 because she only got to play seven more tests yeah. after that. So in 22 years of her international career, 10 test matches are just... Real sterling work by the uh, by the boards that make sure that women don't get to play test matches because who knows what might happen. Their uteruses might fall out. Oh, the economy might be derailed. Shame. Great work. Just great, great work by those boards. Ten tests in 22 years. Keep them down. Keep the numbers down. Um, so, look, that might, be, that might be what Paul was going for. Anna had a clue as well which said, this may not help at all, but I like it. A bolt from the blue... Mm. And also said that it's it might be a macabre number, uh, given what that number led to. Mm, where do you go with that? Yeah, I, I didn't get far. I mean, I saw the macabre reference and thought possibly it might be a, a, a conversation around Craig Kieswitter, who was the 214th uh, Englishman to play uh, one day international cricket. Of course, he um, was a member of the uh, T20 World Cup winning side of 2010, he was opening the batting in that team and did extremely well there. But in 2014, he lost part of his vision uh, after getting whacked in the head by David Willey by a bouncer. He ended up making a comeback. I didn't know this bit of the story, but he made a comeback and actually returned quite successfully in 2014, I think in 2014, and, and was in the provisional squad for the 2015 One Day World Cup. But he made the call that he couldn't quite get back to 100% with his vision. And as a consequence, mm. if he couldn't get to where he was before, he didn't want to be, a, I suppose, an imitation of his former self. And as a consequence, he retired from all cricket. So a World Cup winner, and that was celebrated last year with the 10-year anniversary of, of that triumph for England in the Caribbean. But um, yeah, it, but it wasn't Craig Kiswetter. I, I checked that with Anna afterwards, and she uh, said it was something completely different to that. And, um, and Jeff, I can yeah. see here you've worked it out. Yeah, well, I looked at the clue, a bolt from the blue. Hmm. 214 was the number. Middlesex's score was 214 for seven at the Oval in 2017 when a crossbow bolt 
stuck in the turf near the pitch came flying over one of the grandstands and boinged itself into the oval, sort of wily Coyote style. The game was abandoned because that's what happens when people are just firing archery implements into your um, cricket match, I suppose. Middlesex had a big lead, but it was late on day four, so yep. it would have been a draw anyway. It would have been more interesting um, if it had been a close match, you know, with, with results on the table and, you know, points up for grabs. But in terms of, like, who the culprit was, I don't think that's ever been solved. Uh, there was an arrest made after the event, but there were no charges ever proceeded with. Um, of course, it was the Sun, that, that reputable paper that got the interview with the bloke who got nicked. <laughs> Um, which said, Wayne Brooks, a plasterer aged 35, says he was at a McDonald's 10 miles away on Thursday <laughs> afternoon when a crossbow was fired into the match at the Oval. Apparently his mum owned a flat overlooking the Oval for right. which he was suspected to have fired the offending implement. But he said, it wasn't me, Gov, and he was unfairly nicked. Wayne Brooks, a free Wayne Brooks. So no one ever got charged. I don't think they've solved the, the mystery of the, the Oval Archer. Okay, okay. Hopefully he wasn't at the Engadine Mac as Wayne Brooks. Uh, that will make no sense to anyone outside of Australia. I'm sorry about that. Uh, yeah, the uh, the crossbow incident happened when we were in Bangladesh on that test tour, and it was fairly willing. I mean, if I recall correctly, Rory Burns was at mid-wicket, and the arrow landed like within sort of 10 metres of him. It could have been, yeah, as... As Anna puts out, it could have been quite a macabre situation, really, when you consider the, um, the, the what well, I mean, it, it, it could have killed someone. I mean, there's no exaggeration to say. Yeah, talking to friends at Surrey in, in the last couple of years about this, when my curiosity has been picked and I have uh, reflected on it, they they still are none the wiser. So yeah, it's um, one of those weird stories that. That was thrown up then, and uh, I'm sure we'll find out one day. Someone, once I suppose the statute of limitations has expired, or or something like that, will uh, say it was me. I was the great train robber, or something like that. I kind of doubt that. Maybe the people don't even know because maybe they just shot an arrow up into the air to see what it looked like, or something, and they wouldn't have known where it gone, where it went, and it, it's not like the county cricket news would necessarily have been like top of the the BBC that night. It's like all those clips you see of people shooting their guns in the air to celebrate things, and you're like, all those bullets are going to come down somewhere, so it's not necessarily going to going to end well. But you don't have to think about it if you're at the end, the shooting end. Then, <laughs> then everything that happens out there, that's somebody else's problem. Okay, so, uh, well, thank you, Anna Forsyth, and, and thank you, Paul Reeve. Anna, I'm sure we'll have another re-pledge from you soon, and hopefully we'll get one from you as well, Paul. Our next number, Jeff, is from Bernie Prins. Now, Bernie has sent through 270, and the clue is playing with snow on Kunanyi was a test. Jeff, uh, all yours. Mm, Bernie, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, uh, $2.70. What does two seventy work out at? Well, Kunanyi is the Indigenous name, f- uh, you know, the original name for what now gets called Mount Wellington in Hobart. What a boring name, Mount Wellington. Oh, let's name it after the Duke of Wellington. How fucking original. Good work, England. Mount Wellington in Hobart. Uh, so 
the fact that Snow was in the sentence did make me wonder whether it might be related to Jon Snow. Did Jon Snow, the cricketer, not the Game of Thrones guy, do anything in Hobart? He did play in an MCC match in Hobart against Tasmania in which he was not required to bat and took one for 45 across the two innings. So no 270s relating to Snow, no 270s relating to the match. Yeah, it's it's one of those uh, sort of cliches, isn't it, that uh, whenever you read a match report in relation to Bell Reeve Oval, it always seems to work in the snow on the tips of Mount Wellington. In fact, I'm sure mm. I've been guilty of that <laughs> at one point or another. It's just the easiest yep. place to go on a, on a chilly day when they're playing a test match there. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, so I think that you're right to take it one step further. I doubt it simply about the, the weather conditions. Well, uh, th- that is relevant because I remember being there in 2016, was it, for the West Indies test? 2015, um, yeah. 2015, when it was so cold on the morning of the test that I think they made a selection change, the West Indies, on the morning of the test. They picked Joe Malwarakan, the, the finger spinner. Oh, that's right, Because yeah. they didn't... They didn't think that Devendra Bishu, the wrist spinner, was actually going to be able to grip the ball properly, given that it was about four degrees down there and, and they were all wearing three jumpers and all the rest. Yeah, it was the story about the Warrakane, the man the authorities came to blame mm. for their innings defeat. As opposed to Devendra Bishu slash Devendra Banhart, um, <laughs> who <laughs> produced some, some songs of his own. Um, so where I ended up with this was actually thinking about leg spinners. Okay in Hobart and the difficulty of being a leg spinner in Hobart. Playing with snow on Kunyani was a test. So playing when it was cold in Hobart was a test. And so test matches at Hobart. Mm -hmm. Stuart McGill, SCG Mac, played only two test matches there. But in those two test matches conceded 270 runs. Bernie's number was 270. It's fairly hard for a wrist spinner to do the work down there. So he played the win against the West Indies yep. with Shane Warne in 2005 and then against Sri Lanka after Warne retired in the Sangakara 192. Rudy Kurtzen caught off the helmet during the massive run chase match um, and McGill got smacked around in that fourth innings by Sangakara, one for 102. And so I thought maybe Stuart McGill's 270 runs at Bell Reeve is the go. Yeah, yeah. That was the era where they played Warne and McGill together after the 2005 mm. Ashes because they were, I don't know if it was... Because they, they hadn't done they, it. They realised they made a blue there. I actually flew down for that first day. I've told that story before on the final word where Australia beats Uruguay at the uh, Olympic Stadium to qualify for the 2006 World Cup and I called my dad at about one o'clock from a dance floor somewhere saying, book me a flight. I'm going to Hobart in the morning. Brad Hodge is making his debut. I've got to be there. So I went straight from pretty much the pub back to my parents' place in Sydney at the time and straight to the airport and to Bell Reeve Oval and I don't know. That was that, That's a not a bad summation of what I was like as a 21-year-old, I suppose. But uh, but I remember watching Stuart McGill bowl that day when they knocked over the Windies for, for Soddle, and I reckon McGill was in the wickets there too. Three for 18 he took on the first day um, and, and bowled pretty well. The only other link I could find there was Brett Lee averaged 27 to 7.0 for his 13 wickets at Bell Reef. But, you know, maybe it's not that, maybe it is. Bernie, you can let us know. It's very easy. Drop us a DM on the patron and um, give us a nudge closer to the real number if we haven't got it. Thank you, Bernie. Next up, 696 from Edward Edgecombe. And the clue is what more fitting number for a belatedly given pledge? Jeff, do you want to go first? So initially with this, what pinged in my brain is that it would be about where the England cap numbers were up to. And 
indeed that's correct. On the spreadsheet that I keep of those things <laughs> um, in terms of just listing the debuts in, Dan Lawrence came in at 696 as the most recent player, but he's not actually kept number 696. He's kept number 697 because somebody else intervened. 696 was given out, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And this was uh, excellent uh, work from the ECB during one of the uh, lockdowns last year, perhaps the first one. So this relates to the great Alan Jones. So, you know, the Welsh superstar uh, batsman from uh, the 60s and 70s. So he played for England against the rest of the world in 1970. And the reason why they gave um, this cap out is because it was 50 years since 1970. Now, at the time, they were test matches and retrospectively, they were, they were downgraded by the ICC. But all of the games that Alan Jones played for England were against the rest of the world. And as a consequence, not only were the tests relegated, but so is his status. So he went from being a test player to not a test player. And, and that, that was a wrong that was righted on that 50th anniversary in June last year. He's 81 years of age now. And uh, Joe Root uh, did a fantastic job presenting him the cap, albeit virtually. Obviously, Root's a sort of classy young man and gets these things. Root said, it's a privilege to do this. Your contribution to cricket has been fantastic. And it's only right that we recognise it here today. And they went on to give him the sort of the full cap presentation that the players get now with that sort of ceremonial cap in addition to the playing one that he would have had back in 1970. And taking a, a broader look at Alan Jones's career for Glamorgan, he made 36,049 first-class runs. That's more than anybody who didn't play a test match. So for 23 consecutive seasons between 1961 and 1983, he made in excess of 1,000 first-class runs in a season. Uh, he was a member of the Glamorgan team that, that won the county championship in 1969, their second victory, I think it was, after uh, breaking their duck in 1948. He was the coach of the Glamorgan team that won the Sunday League in, in 1993 and the championship again in 1997. And only one man has scored more than Jones's 56 first-class tonnes without getting a test cap, so to speak. And as I say, even though it wasn't a test cap, uh, he'll always be known as England player 696. So that is the number for Edward Edgecombe, a belatedly given pledge indeed, and that definitely fits. The next number is $5.68 from Cameron. We have a clue. Cameron says his nerd pledge, $5.68, is probably pretty easy to guess given it was well after Clary Grimmett's time. So I won't say much except to say the number was chosen because that day was important for the player the number involves, a certain podcaster, and the internet cricketing community as a whole. And that was the main reason why Cameron chose 568 Jeff. 568. So the internet cricketing community would probably have enjoyed Shakib Al Hassan, uh, sports betting enthusiast, when he took 568 in the second innings of the match against Australia in Dhaka in 2017, because that set up a lead and a win. Um, and hipster cricket loves Bangladesh. Oh, yeah. The internet cricketing community probably wasn't as interested in the Indian leg spinner Shubangi Kulkarni, who took five for 68 in a draw against the West Indies women's team in 1976. But this is notable, and I decided to bring it to your attention, Adam, because Shubangi Kulkarni, as far as I could tell when looking this game up, dismissed a ghost. She got five wickets in the match. Four of them are on the scorecard. And then there is one spot on the scorecard where there's no name. There are 10 names and then just a blank. 
just a big white space on the page. And then as I perused this card more carefully, I found that there was also a big white blank who bowled one over in the first innings when the West Indies were bowling and the Indian team were batting. There was an unnamed player in the team, an unknown player. And I couldn't – I looked back through the rest of the series and this player, there were, the blank didn't recur. It was only in this game. And then I st- – dug into the stats a bit more and I and I pulled up Shivangi Kulkarni's list of dismissals, which you can do, you know, every single dismissal in order. And there was a name on that list amongst the ones from that test match, but it was just an, an initial and a last name. It just said J Alexander. And then if you searched that name in their database, there was only that initial and that one test match listed in which Jay Alexander made four runs and bowled one over and conceded one run, and that was it. And so then digging around on in other places on the internet um, that have scorecards and trying to find different scorecards for this game, eventually I tracked something down which said that Joan Alexander Serrano was this player, but there was still only this one test on record. So in a six-match series, six-test series, This mysterious Joan Alexander Serrano played the one test, batted at number eight, got to bat once and got to bowl one over. Truly the Jodie Hicks of the 1970s West Indies (laughs) women's test team. (laughs) And and the first ghost I've ever seen on a card. Yeah, well, look, put it this way. Even though it may not tick the boxes being uh, relevant to the internet cricketing community, I'm glad we've learnt more about Joan Alexander Serrano. Maybe we should do a bit more digging. Uh, When you were saying uh, I looked Mm. at other places on the internet that keep scorecards, I'm thinking, how many places on the net are keeping a scorecard from 1976 between the West Indies and Indian (laughs) women? But if anyone's going to find it, it's going to be you. Where I took this was initially, anyway, I'm thinking the happiest day for cricket Twitter, in my view, was actually in 2012 when the place was a bit more civil and perhaps a bit smaller and we I feel like we kind of knew each other all a bit better then. And we all loved Ed Cowan because he was kind of part of it. Ed Cowan was a... Uh, not only a tweeter, as a lot of players have been and will be, but Ed would engage with you and, you know, you could ask him questions. He was playing for Australia, but he was still kind of had this um, internet persona, which was pretty accessible, put it that way. And when he made that century against South Africa at the Gabba to start that series where um, Australia um, smack an absolute stack of runs and all come to the exact total in a minute, everyone was very, very happy. I'd love to go back and collate all the tweets, actually. It felt like a win for the good guys. It was a win for the good guys. Anyway, Ed's now a podcaster for the ABC, doing a great job there. I saw a couple of excerpts from him two or three weeks ago, and um, he's bang on the money there. Perfect for the format. We should probably get him on the final word at some stage, come to think of it, Jeff. Uh, anyway, I thought that maybe, just maybe, uh, 568 would have been the runs tally in that innings, and it was nearly right. It was 565 that Australia made there, so missed out by that much. But... um Sticking with that theme of players that have been of a lot of interest to all of us on the internet and the conversations that we have on Twitter and so on, I doubt there's been a player where that's generated more activity than Shane Watson, our old fave, and on his debut for Australia, his test debut uh, in 2005, at the SCG, uh, Australia made 568, so that almost certainly is it. I remember that test match really well, actually. i Flew up to Sydney for it. My parents were living at the time. And it was affected by rain after they bowled out Pakistan on the first day. The second and third days, I think, had plenty of rain about. And Adam Gilchrist walked out. It must have been on the fourth morning and went absolutely wild. Mm. He smuck one of his most absurd centuries, five sixes, in the space of about half an hour after returning uh, that morning uh, to 
reached three figures. Watto was down the other end, making a more subdued 31 from 62, having fallen over when he bowled his first ball uh, in Test cricket, of course. Mm, his spikes got caught in the turf and he went A over T. But Danish Canaria took seven wickets for Pakistan, which I thought it was also worth mentioning here in that first Shane Watson inning. Seven for 188, which is a true titch, a titch Freeman, where you take a lot of wickets but mm. go for a shitload of runs. And uh, the Pakistani leg spinner, who was later banned from international cricket, of course, for... Sports betting enthusiast. Sports betting in the more you bet, the more you win. Speaking of leggies, uh, Warner McGill bowled them out the second time around for Australia to win by nine wickets. And McGill was uh, named player of the match. And Watto is now a podcaster. So it all ties in quite nicely. The Shane Watson podcast, I have no idea what it's called, but he talks to other cricketers, as is the custom. Uh, and uh, and I'm sure he has plenty more to give the internet, uh, Jeff, as, a, as an our former player, uh, given that he's pulled the pin on, on all cricket as of 2020, as of the year 2020, and I'm sure we'll see him bob up making interesting contributions, uh, whether it's uh, yeah, in the podcast realm or coaching or in punditry or whatever else. I think he's got more to give. He's 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 a, a big-hearted man with a lot of love to give. He's got all that love to give. He's got all his life to live, and he'll survive. <laughs> he will survive. Whoa, whoa. Uh, Thank you, Cameron, for 568. Confident that it is Watto, but uh, let us know. Next number comes in from Chris Dobbins. Now, if you give Chris Dobbins a sock, he gets to go free. Um, That's a very important thing to remember. So uh, I'll leave that to your moral judgment. $2.04 from Chris. And uh, I have a feeling that we're about to let Adam Collins off the leash. And we'll do it via Chesney Hawks. Yes, Jeff, 204. It's very, uh, it's very dusty old bastards uh, areas, isn't it? You see a number mm-hmm. like that and you, you just kind of know that it's uh, around that time in English cricket where... A lot of players were used and uh, not many of them lasted the test of time, really. And it's a player who we have talked about on the show. And, Jeff, you have uh, gone through a few of his more headline figures at first-class level. But I thought it was worth telling the story in a bit more depth of the 204th man to play test cricket for England, Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker. Yeah, so I did warn you that, that we we had discussed Charlie and basically Adam said, I don't care, I want to do it again. And you know what? I, I, I think I'll accept that because... <laughs> Charlie Parker deserves another go. Even yeah. if we have talked about Charlie Parker before, Charlie Parker deserves probably probably at least once a year we should talk about Charlie Parker. Well, it, well we talked about Titch Freeman before who's taken the second most first-class wickets ever um, behind Wilfred Rhodes, of course. And slotting in at number three is Chuck Parker with his left-arm orthodox spin, which was so effective. But I just thought, going back through it, it's remarkable in many ways, as it would be for someone that ended up taking, what was it, 3,278 scalps. You're going to have a story or two along the way. But anyway, so he's born in 1882, but doesn't sort of turn to cricket early on. He, he plays golf. And it takes until 1903 before he kind of has any sort of cricket involvement where W.G. Grace sees him bowl and says, you know what, I'm going to get you down to Jeff's favourite county, Gloucestershire. And 
it's kind of not even really the pride in- of Wales, yeah. Gloucestershire. <laughs> but it's not even really until after World War One where he starts to be a, a, a serious player there. So it's from 1920, so 17 years on from joining the club, that he goes on this crazy run, taking in consecutive years: 125, 167, 206, 204, and two 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 wickets respectively in those five seasons, and some huge days in there. A tenfer against Somerset in 1920. A hat-trick in each innings against Middlesex in 1924 after they'd been bowled out for 31. That was a season where he picked up three hat-tricks all up and he was the first ever to do that in an English season. Uh, Later on, Dean Headley became the third uh, in 1996 for Kent. Uh, Had a conversation with Dave Fulton, uh, who I think might have been his captain that day, uh, about that that third hat-trick on air uh, on a commentary stint I was doing with him last year. Anyway, I digress. In 1925, he picked up 17 in a game against Essex. Jeff, we were talking last week about bowlers who've taken 17 wickets in a match. He was one of those. And he just keeps going. So into his 40s, in 1930, he takes seven for 54 against the touring Australians in that tied match. So when Australia tied a Gloucestershire... That's why that. we ended up talking about him the first time around. That's right. Um, That's right. Was, was in relation to that match and his performance in it. Yeah, and then he, he's also... Uh, well, he's the only player to take five wickets in five balls, five bowls in a row against Yorkshire in his benefit match. But one of them he overstepped. So he hit the stumps five times in a row, but only four of them counted, unfortunately. How he managed to send down a no ball given he was a left-arm orthodox spinner is, is anyone's guess. But anyway, by 1931, he's 48 and still going strong. He had 100 wickets by the 12th of June, which was the earliest on record by that time. He ended up taking 219 wickets in a season at age 48. His one test match was all the way back in 1921 against Australia at Old Trafford, and he did nothing wrong. 28 overs, 16 maidens, 2 for 32, but didn't get another opportunity. There was a view taken that his style of slow left-arm spin wasn't going to be effective. He was never taken to Australia. He was never taken on any other tour and, and finished up with just one test after being the 204th to play. And as I mentioned before, 3,278 first-class wickets had an average of 19, 277 five-wicket innings and 91 ten-wicket matches. And Rhodes and Freeman ahead of him as the, the two men who took more wickets than that. He retired in 1935, stayed in the game. He umpired and coached and was a servant to it until he passed away in 1959 at age 74. And I believe we discussed that he was pretty much blackballed because he was a communist as well and he was a very (laughs) outspoken uh, gentleman who roughed up one of the selectors at um, at at an event that they happened to be at. So he was from the Clem Hill School of Defenestration, uh, selectorial defenestration. Had there been a window available, Charlie Parker may have made use of it, but he he used the tools at his disposal. Yeah, I think if we were naming a a favourite final at 11, he'd be there as our our principal spinner, maybe alongside Mm, Clary. Absolutely. Get him in there. Get him up here. So, Chris Dobbins, that is almost certainly not the answer to your 204, (laughs) but you will send us a message during the week and we will have another look at it next weekend on the revisits, which we'll get to after this final new number. It's a triple header. It comes in from Panos, from Paul Davenport and from Alex Crampton. The number is $2.97 and I'll start with Paul Davenport who sent a clue that said that this number has a Kent and an England connection, but it does not this time relate to Rob Key. It's from (laughs) decades ago. 
Hmm, where did you end up in your wander towards Canterbury, Adam? Yeah, deadly. Pride of Wales, Canterbury. <laughs> no, well, well the, the pride and joy of, of Kent County Cricket Club uh, was deadly Derek Underwood, who we uh, talked a little bit about, referred to on the uh, on the Daily Show a couple of days ago. Look, he, he played for Kent. Slow from, left armour. No, well, well, not quite a slow left armour. He was a medium pace left armour, really. That, that's what, what his point of difference was between 1963 and 1987 for the club and for England between... Uh, 1966 and 1982. He was the youngest player, talking of 100-wicket seasons. We talked about Parker being the quickest to that mark in June of 1931. Well, Underwood was the youngest to reach it as an 18-year-old in in 1963. And he went on to play 86 test matches, 297 test wickets at better than 26 Always remembered for his heroics uh, at the Oval, alongside the ground staff, of course, to finish the 1968 Ashes Test match at the Oval, where he took four wickets in 27 balls to to get the freakish win with six minutes to spare. He, He would have taken... More test wickets, if not for World Series cricket, uh, which kind of came in his prime. He was part of the packet uh, teams that went to Australia. But equally, he also went on a Rebel Tour in, in 1981. So that counts against his record, certainly. Um, but nevertheless, he was made an MBE and inducted to the ICC Hall of Fame in 2009 alongside Neil Harvey, David Gower and Alan Border, a handy quartet there. So Derek Underwood, 297 test wickets. And yes, one of Kent's favourite sons. MBE, eh? Well, <laughs> who would have thought that, that being involved in reinforcing structural racism would uh, not see you disqualified from getting gongs from the British establishment? What a surprise. Uh, 297 for Panos, I have gone this way. I did look at this as a batting score and obviously never been made in test cricket, but in first class it has been made three times. 297, not quite as enraging as 299, but, you know... Probably fairly close. Matt Wood made 297 for Somerset in Mm -hmm. 2005, nearly carried his bat and got out late in the piece. Bupinda Singh made it in a run fest for Punjab in 1995. One of those great Ranji games where they only get one innings in a piece because both teams just bat. For a we, we, of learn, days each. We, we learned why didn't we? Didn't we go back and work out it was because they you would get full points back in that era. You would still get yeah. the full allotment first of points innings on lead. first innings. That's right. Yeah, yeah. One team made five hundred and the other made seven hundred in that game, and then they they called it off. Um, but the other one, so you have two thousand and five, nineteen ninety five. The other one goes all the way back to eighteen eighty two. So a long, long gap between those scores being made when Henry Moses was batting for New South Wales against Victoria. So he was playing in that match with Alec Bannerman, the brother of Charles Bannerman, and the umpire for that match was Charles Bannerman, um, <laughs> who was umpiring his brother and probably being very impartial. Uh, and they were playing against Jack Blackham, the the great early you know, captain and wicketkeeper of those days. So in that match, Henry Moses was left high and dry, 297 not out when everyone else got bowled out, um, but they'd made a massive score batting second. And then they bowled out Victoria to win by an innings and 35 runs, which is exactly the margin that India won the test match against England Uh. by on the day that we're recording this show. So I thought for that reason, that would be uh, the answer that I will include this week. Beautiful. Beautiful. Nicely done. Uh, And the third was from Alex Crampton. Now, we had a clue here. I didn't get far, but I might be close. The clue was, I'll tell you something, it's a fleeting number. Now, how I interpreted this is that it was a number that was only relevant briefly in a test match or or a game. Now, Graham Gooch was dropped on 36 
at Lords in 1990 against India uh, by Kieran Moore. And then Gooch made a further 297 runs uh, to finish on 333. Ah. Thus, that could be described as a fleeting moment, I wonder. I like that. Yeah, I think that's good. That's a, it's a poetic interpretation of the clue. It's a solid answer. It's a very niche kind of nerdy answer. And it, it ticks all the boxes for me for Nerd Pledge. So that's the end of our new numbers for this week. If you would like to enter into correspondence with us about it, your number... Do so via the DMs. If you'd like to send a nerd pledge to the final word and be on this show, you can. Uh, that opportunity is open to you. Go to patreon.com slash the final word. Make yourself a little account. Set your number. You have control. It's in your court. That would be absolutely delightful. Normally, this would be the point in the show, Jeff, where we would take a breather. We're not going to do that today. We're going to plough through uh, because normally we would have a – well, often we would have someone to talk about. We would be um, having a conversation around one of our um, commercial partners. We don't have a commercial partner for this part of the show today. So just a reminder that if you want to uh, – I love how euphemistic you get when you talk about this stuff. <laughs> we would be having a conversation around one of our commercial partners. Well, you've got to avoid being crude where you can. But mm. the truth is is that just as many people listen to Storytime – and listen to the weekly show. So there's a great opportunity for uh, you or your company to tell your story here to podcasts that gets downloaded by a great many thousands of people around the cricketing universe. So if you want that to be you, finalwordcricket at gmail.com. Uh, send us an email there and we can have a conversation around getting you on story time throughout the course of 2021. Final word cricket at gmail.com. The revisits, the numbers we didn't get yet, but we will marching relentlessly into the future. $2.19 that came in from Scott Lamprecht. I've been enjoying that name because I imagine that it's what you would say after you crash your car into a light pole. You say, oh, Scott Lamprecht. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it doesn't matter how long Such we make this show for, or who we work for, or the opportunities we get. You're still going to do shit like that, aren't you? Like it's just who you uh-huh. are. Yeah. It's in your DNA. Can't stop. Won't stop. <laughs> Scott tells us that the uh, the two nineteen was not important itself, more that the match was important, and so that led me to uh, deduce that this must refer to Mumbai nineteen thirty three, the first test match that England ever played in India. There was an earlier hint that it was something to do with a big three country. So that was an MCC side captained by Douglas Jardine, who had not yet been uh, ostracised by the establishment for his part in Bodyline. They left that to Harold Larwood, who they blamed at first, and then Jardine maybe copped some of it the blame later and then, of course, got forgiven again because the British establishment. Anyway, Headley Verity took wickets. Brian Valentine on debut made a ton. England got a big lead. There were a couple of milestones for India, though. Mohammed Nissar took five for 90, so that the first five for... And Lala Amanath on debut made a third innings 100, the first century for India in test cricket. He would never make another one, but he went on to coach and manage the team, become a selector and have many, many Amanath sons who all played for India prolifically. Um, that was a team that had CK Naidu and Vijay Merchant. Mm-hmm. Those great names of Indian cricket and never forget Nobby Clark, <laughs> the most English cricketer name of all time. Hello, I'm Nobby Clark. I play <laughs> test cricket for England. Oh, sometimes for Wales. I'm from Gloucestershire. Um, yeah, that's that's where I'm going because 219 okay. was a score that was made in that test match by one of the teams. I can't remember which. Okay, well, good enough for me. I, I'd be uh, negligent not to mention that if you're interested in hearing about tours to India in that 
era. The greatest season it was, Final Frontier, the last interview of our series about India-Australia relations, focusing on the 90s leading into the 2001 series. Of course, this is 20 years since the Calcutta Test match this week. There was a great piece by uh, Gideon Haig in the the Australian today about that. But we interviewed Mike Coward, the great Australian historian and chronicler of the game, and who wrote, of course, Cricket Beyond the Bazaar in 1991 and foreshadowed so many of the the changes that would happen in international cricket around India and, and so on. But the first Australian team to go there in 1935 was on the direct of a man by the name of Frank Tarrant and that episode of Final Frontier ends up almost becoming a a nerd pledge uh, discussion around Frank Tarrant who's an absolute legend really I didn't know very much about him but if you want to learn more about um, Australia's first trip to India and the ones that followed uh, through the 20th century Final Frontier is the show and it's on the greatest season that was feed which is all over the Bad Producer Productions website if you want to find it Nice one A revisit from Joe Wasnishka Wells $2.23, $2.23, or maybe it was in pounds, Joe said he wanted to pledge one ninety nine, but Patron would not allow it. Which So I'm not entirely sure how this works, I should be honest, because I know some people do get numbers under that through, but maybe they're doing it more than once a month. Maybe that's how it works. Right. I, I, I don't know. I should probably find out. But look, if you want to do a number below that and it won't let you, you can always pledge a different number and then send us a message with your preferred number. That is also fine. He said he wanted to do 199. Uh, 199 and 223 relate to the same partnership. I left this to you, Adam. What have you done with the place while I've been gone? Yeah, well, look, I, I looked at 199s and I look, looked at partnerships at 223 and a few other bits and pieces. It, it's not Matthew Elliott's 199. I originally thought he and Ponting might have put on 223. They actually put on 268 after Australia fell to mm. 4 for 50 in that Leeds Test match of 97 that we uh, talked about off the top with Jason Gillespie, 7 for 37. So I looked for something better than that um, that had both numbers included. Something very tangential. In 1948, when Australia were hosting India at the Melbourne Cricket Ground, Bradman and Morris put on 223 to chase 255, four wickets down it. Allowed Bradman to complete twin centuries. He made 127 uh, not out in the second innings. From number six, interestingly, I'm not sure why he shuffled himself down the order from his standard number three, but he had. But in the first innings, he made 132 in 199 minutes. So it's not related to mm-hmm. the the partnership of two two three, but there is a a 199 in relation to to Bradman who who made those twin centuries and put on two two three with Arthur Morris. An honourable mention to Dravid and Lakshman, Mark II. I noted that it's 20 years uh, this week since their most famous partnership. Well, their, their second most famous partnership was in Adelaide in 2003. Remember when Rahul Dravid was 199 not out overnight, Jeff, and uh, they came yeah. back the next day and, and finished their partnership. But not quite enough. They put on 203, not 223, and Dravid, of course, uh, finished on 233 himself. So that's about as good as I've got, though. So I... I feel as though, Joe, this might be one that you're going to have to answer for us. We've had a couple of bites of the cherry and given we're not there, uh, I'm going to encourage you to send us a message and solve it for us and um, we'll come back to it next week on Storytime. Thank you, Joe. Steve Lofthouse, next up, 2.31. I was talking last week about the USA and Canada. Steve said he should narrow it down geographically. It was about a domestic first to be celebrated with a frothy one of these and he sent me a link to a delicious master's spearmint milk (laughs) have you ever wanted to drink milk with toothpaste in it now you can somehow we will i miss quarantine i miss hotel q suddenly that was uh my drink of choice in that stretch (laughs) 
<laughs> so, and this also links just by chance to what we were talking about on the weekly show last Wednesday, which was New South Wales winning all the bloody time in the WNCL, in the domestic 50-over competition. So 24 titles in total, 20 of them won by New South Wales, two to the Vicks, one to Queensland, I think. And last season was the very first win for Western Australia, where Master Spearmint Milk comes from. The WA team won in the final by getting bowled out from the last ball of their innings, batting first and making 231, and then bowled out the breakers for 189 to win the first title for the West in women's 50-over domestic cricket. And that, I believe, is what Steve is shooting for. Very nice. Isn't a a breaker uh, uh, flavoured milk as well, if I recall correctly? Yes, but with a with an an er rather than uh, an a, right. sorry the milk is an a and the <laughs> cricketer is an er so breaker 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 Morant, etc uh, if if we can link in who was going to the ball war yes and, we uh, uh, we had a ball war dying of typhoid earlier today oh jj ferris of course so yeah um, jj ferris was over there with the breaker we're tying the threads together in the revisits uh, the next of those jeff is perhaps one of our best nerd pledges ever really now i don't want to sort of encourage people to send excessively cryptic clues because uh well let's be blunt that'll add dramatically to our workload each week but we're just not that good at it like let's be honest we have our strengths um and we can figure out some of them but yeah, we are we are men of moderate talent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of the number being a, a filter into telling a lovely story. I don't want to necessarily spend two hours trying to work out what it is. But in the case of Alan Edgar, it was worth the effort and indeed worth the wait. So, Jeff, you did really well uh, last week getting as far as working out that it probably related, his 231, probably related to the 554 slash 555-run partnership that was a record at the time that Percy Holmes was involved in, the Yorkshireman, and it was it was a 554-run partnership which they later altered to make 555 to break the record. Yes, well, it had been understood during the game to be 555, um, except the scoreboard was wrong. So then it had to be done on count back, um, like the votes in Georgia. Um, you just find me ten thousand <laughs> votes. That's all I need. Just find me, just find me one noble from, from yesterday. So look, I, I I got that that related to Percy Holmes one way or another. But looking back on this, I'm I'm a little bit embarrassed we didn't figure this out because the clues were there from Alan. He said we'd need first class detective. Work, and he said it would involve a tube stop that you could use if you were going to a test match. Well, detective work, Baker Street, come on, put it together, you guys. Mm. And he also said it might involve the number 221, which didn't relate to cricket. That was the bit that I didn't get because I didn't have the recall of that number. But a bunch of people emailed us or messaged us about that, including Gopal on Twitter, saying that 221... B, to be precise, 221 is the address that Sherlock Holmes lives at on Baker Street. So, okay, you've got Baker Street, you've got Sherlock, you've got Holmes from the Percy Holmes from the 555 partnership, and then that all has to link to the 231 somehow. Yeah, and Alan uh, just got on the phone and called me, the old-fashioned way, no DMs from Big Al. (laughs) He said that the first-class detective work he confirmed, as you say, it was all to do with Sherlock Holmes and uh, 221 and Baker Street. Um, But as for 231, so it was 221 slash 231 we had to get to the finish line on. And Sherlock Holmes, of course, was written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle 
played 10 first-class games and made 231 runs, which is the number. Yes. He played a lot of cricket around the turn of the 20th century, but he's more famous for one of the two wickets he took in first-class cricket, which was that of W.G. Grace. So picked up Grace, made 231 runs, and his principal character lived at 221 Baker Street, and it was all about Percy Holmes, who's involved in the 555 slash 554 stand. And we got there in the end, and uh, it was a it was a fun one. Thanks to Rob O'Neill, who was also there in the DMs, helping us along the way. Very nice, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, up there with Samuel Beckett in terms of literary greats with first class careers. I'm sure there'll be some like elevens uh, out there online of people going the greatest. Writers, 11. In the OBO, um, surely. That, that, that's very um, Guardian Life blog. Rain delay OBO. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Trev from Perth with access to the Masters Spearmint, the 767 that Trev sent through. He initially said it was about a somewhat obscure bowling performance. He said, given I know how much you blokes like a cryptic clue, this should get you home. All caps, D-K-V-R-O-W. Well, to me, that has to mean D-K, Lily versus the rest of the world. But I cannot for the life of me figure out what this 767 or this 767 is because Lily never took seven for 67 in any form of cricket. Didn't take a seven for in a World Series one day. Did take seven for 23 in a World Series test, but that was against the West Indies team, not the world team. Took eight for 29 in a World 11 match, not part of World Series cricket in 1972 to win it in three days. But um, that was far fewer runs than, than 67 would be. If it doesn't Equate to bowling figures exactly. Lily played in the season 1976-7, which would be 7-6-7, against Pakistan, New Zealand, and then England in the centenary test. And that's his most prolific first-class season with 70 wickets at 19. Um, and that's a lot of teams, so that's kind of the rest of the world. But I don't think that's obscure enough, given yeah. that Trev said it was supposed to be obscure. So I think yeah. I'm... I'm white flagging on this one, Trev. Uh, you, it is time we surrender. You can, you can come in and apply the coup de gras. Yeah, I, I feel as though our first answer, which was Jeff Dimmick taking seven for sixty-seven in a in a twelve-wicket match in India in 1979, would have been probably more along the lines of obscurity uh, compared to Dennis Lilly, his former teammate. But mm. yeah, we're going to have to get a message uh, from you on that one, Trev. But thanks for coming back to us in the DMs, as did Rory Seymour with his 277, Jeff. We said Brian Lara. Yes, uh, we talked about the 277 at the SCG. Really, I just wanted to talk about the 277 at the SCG, you know, <laughs> regardless of what the answer might have been. Rory said um, he enjoyed the discussion, so that's good. But this is a bit too early. Early for me, he says, although I do remember the highlights were featured on my well-worn DVD of Richie Benno's Greatest Eleven. My actual pledge relates to scores of 277 made in consecutive years, one for a team that I support and the other against a team that I support. Hmm. What did you make of it? Yeah, and he adds here that he personally knows the scorer of one of these 277s. And I know that Rory's from Northants, so I sort of put the pieces together from there. And it all works quite neatly, actually. So in 2002, uh, Rob White made 277 for Northants against Gloucestershire at the county ground. And then the next year, so that's his team. And in terms of the 277 made against his team in 2003 uh, for South Africa against England, Graham Smith made 277 at Edgbaston. But 
I just wanted to uh, focus on the story of the North Hans man for a moment, who, of course, sounds like Rory's friends with in real life. Rob White had a 12-year career between 2000 and 2012. Eight centuries, average 32, very county cricket areas kind of thing. But we all have our one big day, and Rob's came in just his fifth first-class game in 2002. And get this, it's the highest maiden first-class ton in England ever. So huh. for anyone that's made a, you know, their first 100 in England, yes, no one's ever gone higher than, than 277. So it's a little piece of history for him there. He did so as a, a 23-year-old opening the batting. It took him just 325 balls to get to that sort of Lara-esque tally of 277. And get this, he was part of a 375-run opening stand with Mark Powell, who made just 107 of those. So that gives you a, a feel for just how quickly Rob White was going uh, through the course of that first mm. day. And then a bit of extra trivia. So he's 277 and gets a partnership of 375, the two great Lara numbers. Oh, the two yes. The great Lara numbers. Even better. I, I didn't spot that. Nicely done, Jeff. Uh, and a bit of extra trivia here. Later in the innings, indeed, when White gets out late on day one, three wickets down and out walks Monty Panesar, uh, batting at number five, presumably as a night watchman, gets a first ball duck. But he does redeem himself. Young Monty, young then. Monty takes uh, seven wickets for the match and North Hants beat... Gloucestershire by an innings, and it's all set up by uh, Rob White's 277, and that surely is the number that Rory Seymour's pointing us to. Just imagine Monty walking out at five with a video camera and just starts conducting an interview about (laughs) EU politics or something. (laughs) 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 Doing doing some great work on the internet. He must be making, um, it must be said, you know, it's easy to take the piss out of the Monty channel, and I do, but... (laughs) <laughs> he gets the hits, maybe not so much on Twitter, but he gets the hits on YouTube. So someone's making a buck. I hope it's Monty. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere, somewhere out there, Monty is doing leg presses with his sofa, and then just raking in the sweet YouTube <laughs> ad money. <laughs> You're an idiot if you don't, not if you do. Uh, next revisit six six four. So Brett Simmons. We went to great lengths last week to explain why we thought this was Clive Rice. Indeed, I spent a lot of time uh, trying to justify why it was Clive Rice. Um, A link to Scotland and the 1970 Edinburgh Commonwealth Games and a number of other hooks that I thought worked. Unfortunately, I I wasn't right, but Brent has solved it for us, Jeff. It was good. It was a very good guess. I respected your work ethic. And you were almost right because it wasn't Clive Rice, but it was... The man who, as Brent explains, on South Africa's return to test cricket was controversially chosen over Clive Rice to lead them in the first test in the West Indies and took them to the 92 World Cup. That was Kepler Vessels, who scored 664 runs, the number we were trying to solve, in his first-class appearances for Sussex at the Saffron's ground. That was the initial clue, was that we were looking for something related to that ground, where he played for a couple of seasons, including 197 not out in his final game against Nottinghamshire, in which Clive Rice (laughs) scored 100 not out. And Brent goes on to say, "I, I published my only cricket article for the Association of Cricket Statisticians about Kepler vessels later in the year. I recently rejoined the ACS and I'm thinking of writing another article about Kepler vessels at the Saffrons. However, after 40 years, there is no need to rush these things. So if you're looking at, say, 297 being scored in 1882 and then in 1995, this is the article about Kepler vessels equivalent that Brent's written one of them in 1979 or whatever it is and is then going to turn around and maybe do another one in the next couple of years. Yeah, and I've asked Brent to send that to me when he does publish it. So just to go full circle on this, the rebel teams that uh, that vessels played for, World Series cricket, then for Australia... 
on a tour of South Africa on a Rebel tour, and then for South Africa when England's Rebel teams uh, came there in the 80s. So he kind of completed the full set there. And another point to make here is that Brent's also a discussion we've had quite a bit on the final web, but even more on the Guardian Live blog. The links where you, you can find a way of overlapping uh, in as few players as possible, everybody that's played first-class cricket. So he's gone through and worked out from the first first-class game in 1772 between Hampshire and an all-England 11, where Jay Small played for Hampshire and played with Beauchamp in 1798, and so on and so on and so on. And it links to Phil DeFreitas, who he, he had in his clue, I think from a couple of weeks ago, saying that our player in question could have played against DeFreitas if not for the fact that uh, he'd elected no, to... No, he did. He did. He did play against Defratus in the ninety two in ninety two World, World Cup. You're um, right, but not in, on the Rebel Tour. The, the game where um, England had to chase twenty one off one ball. That's it. That's uh, it. Or where South Africa had to chase twenty one off one ball. Yeah, um, Defratus and and Kepler vessels were both in that game. So you've got Higgs to Defratus. So fifty eight is where Higgs starts his career. Defratus finishes at two thousand and five. Darren Stevens played with Phil DeFreitas in 2004. He, of course, debuted in 97, but just got another two-year contract. He thinks like he's 46 years of age or or something now. So he's the latest in that thread of players that, what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. 11 players get you from 1772 to 2021. Impressive work there from Brent Simmons. Yep, that is a very long time to be thinking about cricket. The 205 from Kieran Barnes Jenkins, Adam was talking about Chucker Wilson. Always a great (laughs) nickname to have as a bowler because it was supposed to be about Victorian leg spinners. Kieran said he wished that his nerd pledge was the dirty old bastard Chucker Wilson. I I think we should clarify at this point that uh, dusty old bastards rather than dirty (laughs) old bastards is is what we're going with. We don't want to um, cast any nasturtiums as um, Dame Edna Everidge would say, against um, any of the people that we're mentioning, unless they deserve them. Kieran says, we name-checked Warren, McGain and Cam White. That leaves another Victorian leggy of my shield-viewing vintage that my pledge relates to. I know it really shouldn't, but it did kind of sting when Jeff said that Cam White's leggies are better than mine. I haven't seen you bowl, Kieran, but I'm confident in my assessment. Nonetheless, you figured this one out, I think, Adam. Well, yeah. I mean, first I was thinking, who are the leggies that played for Victoria when KBJ and I were growing up? And I, I first thought Craig Howard, who was the... Kind of the, the fill-in leggy when Warney was on international duty in the mid-90s, so 92 to 96. He was actually thought to be the most talented of the lot, but it didn't quite happen for him. He had a massive wrong end, which Jared Kimber wrote extensively about in his Crick Info days. Of course, Jared watched a lot of Victoria in that era, I'm sure. I know, I'm certain. And Craig Howard did bowl out South Africa in a tour game once. but And these days, he, he, he is the... Um, the Australian spin consultant up at the Academy in Brisbane has a fair bit to do with Mitchell Schwepson and, and the next generation coming through. But he had nothing to do with 205. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, Christ, who is it? 205, Farwood Ahmed. Farwood Ahmed took 205 wickets in first-class cricket. Another player with a huge wrong, and I should say, who could have been a test star had things been a fraction different. Amazingly, though, Jeff, I thought you'd like this. If you jump on Farwood Ahmed's cricket archive page, mm. they've still got the mugshot up of him when he played first-class cricket in Puck before he moved to Australia in the mid-2000s. So um, that's one for you to look up later if you've got access to that portal. Cricket Archive is spectacular for the incredibly shit-ass photos that it has of players. Like, yes. it's, it's like they get the first 
photo they could possibly find and then never change it again. The, the one of David Warner up there, he's about 17. He's got like this little shaven <laughs> bullet head, um, this little sort of manic <laughs> grin on his face. Um, like he's genuinely a kid. There are a bunch of, of quite established players on there with um, teenage photos from, from 20 or 30 years ago. Well, I hadn't noticed it. Maybe it's a thing. Maybe you get your first photo and that's the, that, they get the youngest photo they that's can it. find of you and that's it. I mean, it's a brilliant subscription service and I'm very happy to part with 50 bucks a year to have access to their database. But the reason I was on Cricket Archive, I was curious as to his season-by-season breakdown, Farwad Ahmed, and it was the 2014-15 season, which makes sense because he went to the West Indies and England as the second spinner uh, in 2015, and it was on the back of 48 wickets for Victoria at an average of 24 in a Shield-winning season in 14-15. So it didn't quite happen ever so close at uh, Dominica, which was the first test that I was covering on tour. They they put Farwad up to talk to us as the press pack two days before the test. And as you know, Jeff, if you're talking to the press two days before a test, you're almost certainly playing. It's as strong a signal as you can get from uh, the camp mm. that you're getting a game. But then I think from memory, Mark Waugh was the, the selector on tour and he made a call that they should go with three quicks and a spinner, the more conventional setup, And he was right in the end because Mitchell Stark wouldn't have played. And in the end, Stark did play and did really well. So all's well that ends well, but it did deny Farwad Ahmed what would have been a famous test taboo. And that is certainly what my friend Kieran Barnes-Jenkins is talking about for 205. Yeah, I'm going to say they dogged it. They could have picked him somewhere and they didn't. They didn't. They let us all down. The revisit from Anurban on $1.26, an urban replies to say, thank you for some great reminders of forgotten 126s, especially Mark Wars in the 96 World Cup. And like the T20 with New Zealand that I was oblivious of, it will now try to track down. The number I had in mind refers to a batsman's bowling figures in a match where he's remembered for his batting. The lone wicket, to keep with the theme of minor historical coincidences, was of the same Indian batsman who produced a surprisingly astonishing catch to dismiss Ponting in the 1996 World Cup match in question. You've been in the sheets, Adam. The spreadsheets, that is. I tried. And Urban, I, I promise you I tried. Um, I looked at all of Ponting's dismissals from uh, the 96 World Cup that may have related to the figures of 1 for 26 and we just didn't get there. Um, he was out leg before wicket against India, so I wonder whether there might have been something lost in in the detail there, or I might not have picked it up correctly. Steve Tickelo, uh, the Kenyan great, took one for 26 against India after making 65, but Ricky wasn't out caught against them. I mean, as a Saeed, took one for 26 against England for the UAE, but didn't make any runs opening. Even Nathan Astle took one for 26 against the West Indies, but didn't make runs in that game, and he didn't catch Ricky when New Zealand played against Australia. So I mean, I've gone around in circles a bit there, but 96 World Cup, figures of one for 26. Ricky Ponting getting caught, I'm not quite there. Maybe I've misinterpreted it, entirely possible, but it might be that uh, we need to go a step further. So please, please help us solve that one. Yeah, I reckon the one for 26 doesn't have to be at the 96 World Cup, but if you're talking about an Indian batsman catching Ponting and he wasn't caught when they played India, then... It doesn't leave you with, with really anywhere else to go. So let us know, yeah. Anurban, um, if we've misunderstood that or if you can finish it off for us. And uh, Bernard Sayer has put us out of our misery on the $3.42 that um, we were trying to link to the Adelaide Oval 10 years ago. <laughs> it ends up being not 342 but a 342 as in the score, three wickets 
for two runs on the first morning of the Adelaide Test match. Yeah, that's right. And Dane Hanstead also got this right in the DMs, naturally, one of the uh, great puzzle solvers uh, for us uh, over there. Bernard told a story, though, which I thought was just nice to cherry-pick from a little bit, uh, given it was a heartfelt one at that. So, yes, Three for two was the score that Australia were in his first test match as a Saka member. That was the other part of the clue. It related to his first test match as a Saka member. So it was in November 2010. Bernard explains that 2010 was the year that saw his life start to turn around. He had a a dreadful 2008 Uh, a personal year of horror, he described it as. But it was beginning to feel like a distant memory uh, by 2010. However, walking into the ground for that morning's play under the Western stand for the first time as a member, it just wasn't cooking for me. Um, I was trying to be optimistic about the Brisbane test, uh, but I just felt flat. And then the first person he runs into was his ex-wife, who he'd lodged the membership application form uh, with a few years before while they were still married. So it wasn't going well for him. But soon enough, the cricket began, and that's what it's all about, he told himself, grasping for optimism but of course 13 balls later that's when Australia are are three for two and it's all looking uh, pretty grim and that night when he gets back to the train station his car is heavily vandalised which means that he doesn't get a chance to uh, go to the fourth day as he previously planned so it didn't really work out too well for him but it's a a distinct memory uh, for our friend Bernard who was there when Australia lost three for two at the start of the 2010 test match at Adelaide Oval. There we are, the revisits that we either have solved or have had solved for us. Thanks, everybody, who's helped us out with those. The confirmations for some of the ones we got right, the $4.22 that we were looking at for David Smith, um, I said it might be Andy Flowers' runs made in a series against South Africa. Um, David said uh, it wasn't that, but actually we got it by accident because it was a double header and we did the other person's 4.22, which was the total wickets taken by the aforementioned Dennis Lilly if you added his World Series wickets to his initial test wickets. And so that was a correct answer, as it was for Richard Jones, who was part of that double header um, and had also put in for DK's 4.22. And exactly the same thing happened with uh, Jack Firth's 454. So we said Tony Lewis, but Jack explained that Jeff actually got it right uh, talking about the final bodyline test where Harold Larwood made 98, which was the other 454 we were looking for at the time. So in consecutive <laughs> numbers, we've uh, we've been there, but just not with the right person. Jeff, 216, Jaya Prakash, uh, I talked about the 2010 extraordinary finish at Mahali. He was very excited to see that and confirmed that it is indeed uh, 2010 at Mahali. I feel it is one of the modern classics and really should be talked about more often. Also, he says, I think about VVS Latchman absolutely losing his shit at Pragyan Yoja at least once a week. So I'm glad we were able to get that right, 216, at the first time of asking. Thomas Melia's uh, 105, the lowest score that WG Grace did not make in first-class cricket. Well done on getting that right, says Thomas. Uh, Incidentally, you mentioned MJK Smith the other day, who also completed a century of scores. I've only found five batsmen to achieve this total, who are Tom Graveney, Grace, Dennis Amos, Smith and John Edrich. Um, I've got 62 more names to look into, says Thomas, (laughs) Barrington and Hutton included, so I'd expect a few more to crop up. I've looked at 70 players so far, assuming a minimum of 25,000 first class runs to narrow down his searches. Yeah, and and I was uh, going back and forth uh, with Thomas about this uh, during the week, who's committed to me that once he gets his final list, he'll also write a piece for the Association of Cricket 
statisticians, which is what Brent Simmons is doing at the moment about Kepler vessels. So I'm glad that we're uh, inspiring a, a bit of journalism along the way here on Storytime. Uh, Pushka Godbole sent through 242. We talked about Desert Storm. 242 was the target that India needed to reach, not to win against Australia, but to make it through to the final. Uh, he says that we were bang on. I listened to the Calling the Shots and the Greatest Season that was episode after I put in a pledge. And after listening to those episodes, I was certain that Adam would get this. But I did enjoy the harsher clip and Tony Gregg in full swing. There we go. And uh, Nick Tewson says Adam was spot on with Dom Thornley and Stuart McGill putting on 219 as a partnership. Uh, he says his next clue will be a dusty old bastard for that $2.19 yes. from Nick Tewson. Now, we mentioned Bannerman earlier in the show today. Uh, if you're not familiar with Charles Bannerman, you should be. Played in the first test match, made the first test 100 and holds a record to this day for the highest percentage of runs in a completed innings by an individual batsman. That's what Bannerman is all about. And we've been looking at many Bannerman-related things over the last few weeks. Yeah, and it all blew up on Wednesday, uh, Jeff, which just happened to be World Maths Day. <laughs> so that would have been quite nice. So Ibrahim Zadran, the 19-year-old playing his third test match for Afghanistan, when all looked lost for Afghanistan, and in the end they, were, they, they lost inside two days to Zimbabwe, it felt as though the Bannerman was in play. It kind of was in play. At one point, he had 40-odd of the 60 runs and they lost about six wickets. And you're thinking, this could easily... Happened here. He ended up uh, making 76 out of 135, 56%, which is a, a fine effort from the 19-year-old, and, and we'll keep an eye on him. But later on the same day, Worcestershire County Cricket Club, who brought to our attention that it was World Maths Day, wrote an article about the great Glenn Turner's 83.4%, the all-time first-class record made for Worcestershire uh, against Glamorgan at Swansea back in 1977 with his 141 not out, out of 169. And I just love the idea of perhaps the most famous cricket Twitter account in county circles, um, the Worcestershire account, which has brought a lot of joy to people over a long period of time. I love the idea of them listening to the final word and getting a, getting an idea for an article and, and linking it back to this sort of uh, world maths day and kind of holding it and putting it on ice and thinking, we'll roll it out on that day. So if you are listening, thank you. And, and thank you also to Richard Clark and Sevens Casino in Oxfordshire on Twitter for bringing that uh, Glenn Turner um, article to our attention. <laughs> Sports betting enthusiast Sevens Casino in Oxfordshire. Friends of the show. Uh, <laughs> the other little bit of World Maths Day statage that came through to us was from Mark Puttick, who let us know that in that same test match, uh, Zahir Khan, not the one who used to play for India, but the one who now plays for Afghanistan, has set a record for the most innings to start a test career without scoring a run. So far, Zahir Khan has gone, not, not out, not, not, not out, not, not out, not, and not, breaking the record of India's Commander Rangachari, who went, not, not out, not, 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 not out, not, to start his test career in 1948 against Australia and the Windies. Uh, the good news that is in his fourth and final test at Mumbai, Commander Rangachari made eight, not out. 
triumphantly marched back into the sheds. I wonder if he started with a four-over cover, took nine wickets at, at 54. One of the great cricketing names up there with, you know, the, the likes of Napoleon Einstein and, and Washington Sundar and, and so on. But Zahir Khan has done what Marvin Adipatu couldn't because Marvin Adipatu did score a single in his first six innings. And I'm pretty sure Rangachari's debut, so what would have been his naught not out naught was in the uh, 1948 Test match at Melbourne that we were talking about earlier with Bradman making his twin tons. So again... I love it when all the threads come together at the end of a storytime episode. Uh, last on uh, Matters Bannerman and other topics that generally relate to stuff like this. Uh, Glenn Finkeld, our reliable correspondent, uh, spotted on social media today that in Melbourne club cricket, Scott Dixon for Greenvale, Kangaroos, made 56 out of 81. They were skittled for 81 by Melbourne. Uh, that's 69.1%. That's a Bannerman. If it's above 67.35, you're a contender. And Scott Dixon, uh, a half century uh, out of a total of 81, uh, that's quite the effort, so well played him. Also pretty remarkable to have a name of Scott Dixon making 69%. Well done, Scott. (laughs) Last piece of correspondence from Sarah Berman, who we were speaking um, last week, I think, about the great Enid Bakewell, one of the finest players ever in the women's game. And and Sarah sent through a remarkable little piece of correspondence, uh, catching up with Storytime 35. She says, Enid is, in fact, still actively playing cricket at a minimum once a year at Cricket Week, a women's cricket festival that lasts. You'll never guess how long it lasts, Adam. It lasts for a week. Wisdom <laughs> Cricket Monthly comes out 12 times a year. It's been running near Malvern since 1927, says Sarah. I was a regular before buggering off from the UK and get withdrawal symptoms every year when it's on. A wonderful, friendly and inclusive festival where participants are mixed into mixed ability teams, play cricket, laugh a lot, drink a lot, camp around the edge of the outfield uh, and come home with many new friends. So basically it's like Meredith Music Festival for cricket. Mm. Um, Sounds good. But Sarah remarkably says there I and many others have had the immense privilege of playing with and against Enid, learning from her and enjoying her inimitable humour, a true legend of the game and still giving back. Since you talked about her playing into her 50s, that was in county cricket, I thought I'd share that she's, she's still playing presumably at a much more advanced age than that. She must be into her eighties by now, in it. Yeah, well, she? near enough. If not, if not, yeah. I think, in fact, I think she is eighty. I think there was a something about it mm. last year. So, uh, of course, um, playing county cricket from the fifties until nineteen ninety nine, where she turned out with Beth Morgan, who only retired a couple of years ago. Astonishing. Sarah also sent through separate to that some beautiful pics of all of the um, tents around the ground there at Malvern. So, I think I want in on that festival. I mean, talk about Meredith. I think mm. I think that's the that that feels like a festival. The final word should attend. Uh, at some point so um someone get us a gig there someone uh give us an excuse to spend uh, a night or two at at Malvern uh, if it doesn't go ahead this year because of COVID then perhaps in 2022 yeah yeah I, I don't I don't think we need an excuse I think we can just go down and and be involved and I particularly like that idea of people of mixed ability being able to just get into their teams no matter what that's the the sort of thing we were talking about the other week with pub cricket and you know, being able to play without feeling like you actually have to be at a certain standard mm. to play. Um, that's that's the, the glory and the joy of it. I think that's it for us for this weekend for story time. Uh, if you want to be part of it, send us a number on the old Patreone. Uh, and if you want to send us correspondence about it, do that as well. It goes on 
and on into the weekends of the future. It, it certainly does, and partly because people have been updating their pledges, which is just wonderful. So a lot of people who sent pledges through in 2019 have come through and, and made an edit, which is just great, uh, and I suppose reflects the, their enjoyment of the not only the weekly show, but this show as well, which I mentioned in the middle that just as many people um, want to be with us on the weekend and want to do this, and I reckon that's just wonderful. So um, thanks to everyone for that. We've, um, we're nearly at another milestone in terms of patrons. We might hold that back for the, for the weekly show, Jeff, but yes, uh, a good time to get involved if you see fit, patreon.com forward slash the final word. We love you all. The Final Word is a show on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Lots of other shows on there you can check out as well. It's edited by Dave Collins and it is brought to you by us, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, uh, supported by Seabus Super. Thank you particularly to them as well. And uh, thanks most of all to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. It's the only reason why it exists. It's the final word. Story time. See you later. Bye. I had to go.